0: Good afternoon. This is Chickie Fitzgerald. It's Friday, April 3rd, and it is Good Friday, and we are headed into a nice, long weekend. It's gorgeous here in Tampa, Florida, uh, but as we Floridians do, we are actually getting away from our home in Florida uh, for a couple of days, so headed out to do that this afternoon. But before we do that, we are going to talk to a dear friend of mine, uh, Suzanne Garber. And Suzanne has written a really really unique work. And it, as you will hear uh, from her, it has come out of uh, personal experience. It has come out of a lot of interviews, but she has written in a style that I absolutely love, which is an allegorical novel uh, intended to teach business truths. Sue's welcome.
1: Thanks so much, Chickie. I'm delighted to be here. Happy Good Friday to you.
0: Why don't you start with giving us your professional background, or go go as far back as you would like? Uh, our listeners like to hear about you personally uh, and your story, and what led up to writing this book, uh, and and in your case, what happened after you wrote the book, and uh, then we'll dive into uh, into the book itself.
1: Fantastic. Well, my background is in healthcare logistics and in the hospitality arena. My career began with FedEx, um, and I rose through the ranks at FedEx, I had a career there of about 14 years, and ended up being the managing director over South America based in Brazil. Great company, great job, great people. I honestly never thought I'd leave there. But I got that call from a recruiter one day um, that swept me away into the executive ranks of international healthcare, care, and I became the chief operating officer for the world's largest uh, medical evacuation company, and, which is based in Singapore, but I, I moved to Philadelphia. And I led that team for a number of years, um, overseeing such... Major events in the world such as the Arab uprising, um, the Haiti earthquake, the Japanese tsunami, and basically airlifting people to help, and beyond just airlifting people to help, also connecting patients with international hospitals. So that's my background. Like I said, a kind of unique blend of international healthcare and logistics. Um, right. I also served on a number of boards, both private and uh, um, and nonprofit. And how this book actually came about was several years ago um, was calling friends and colleagues during the holiday period and came upon one um, who did not sound to be in the holiday spirit. And this right. is somebody I had greatly admired and respected. We were both of a similar um, level uh, at our former employer, and she had been part of a massive downsizing. So it wasn't anything personal. It wasn't about her performance. It was just, a, I guess, a financial decision made by the company to let go of um, several thousand employees, and she was one of them. And after a couple of years, she had um, made a couple of poor choices, both because of her own lack of, of knowledge on the topic and also bad luck, quite frankly. And she was now homeless. And it absolutely shocked me that somebody who had an MBA from a great school, who had been so successful in her career and climbing that corporate ladder, somebody who was so aggressive, was now living in a women's shelter And I thought, how does this happen? And beyond just even asking the question to myself or to her, doing something practical about it. So my husband and I talked about it. We sent her a one-way train ticket to come live with us so that she could get back on her feet in a comfortable environment. And um, so I reached out to my networks of corporate executives. Hey, have you ever had a a downsizing, a termination, a layoff, whatever you want to call it? Tell Mm -hmm. me your stories of hope and resiliency. And that's how I conducted these 110 interviews of C-level executives.
0: Well, and, you know, we then, interview yes. so many authors, uh, Suze, who, who go down that same path of interviewing, and then they write a, a what I will call more a, a technical delivery of the information that they find. and Because there is so much good information that you can glean, and you can share, you know, truths in the normal format of a business book but you chose to do something different.
1: I did. I did. I have always been fascinated by those books that tell a story, that that engage you in an emotional fashion. And I thought, you know, I definitely could just write down, you know, the 110 interviews and uh, pull trends out of this person or that person or categorize them by the number of marketing executives or IT executives or yes, exactly. HR executives <laughs> And I didn't want to do that. I wanted to do something different because when I started looking at all the different books on networking, and really, like I said, this is really an exercise just to help my friend and to give her some hope and some um, some tips on how can she bounce back from this. This is not the worst thing that has happened in her life, and I want her to see that this can be used for good. Um, but then I started thinking, you know, there's some great trends in here. Um, I, I'm also, if I can be so member for the American Red Cross, and I also, part of that, I volunteer on Friday nights to help victims of disaster. Um, So on a Friday night when there's a fire that occurs in the city of Philadelphia, I go and counsel the, the people who have just lost everything. And when you look at a termination or a layoff, it's not unlike... House fire you've lost everything you've lost everything that you've accumulated over the years, whether that's right. salary or title or identity and so I wanted to craft a story that kind of wove together both the tenants um of the Red Cross and helping people get back on their feet, but also helping people from a professional standpoint of you know this has happened to you, yes, it is a terrible thing it doesn't have to be that way. let's look at ways that you can bounce back and become even stronger for it
0: right. And Suzanne, this book isn't for everyone. This book is geared uh, almost exclusively for executives that have achieved a certain income level and title, where it, it's not just losing a job where you you know in a month you can find a new job. You know, I, I've heard it said that you know once you make six figures, you know, like for every, I don't know whether it's every ten thousand over that, you know, you can add a month to your job search. And, and so it, it becomes, uh, in many cases, a very long search, even if you haven't had something devastating like, you know, living in a shelter. So tell, right. tell me about why, why you targeted it at that fairly narrow audience when you think about marketing, um, you know, because you've narrowed this down to a group who really, really needs networking. In a much deeper sense than the kind of shallow networking that many people engage in, you know where they're participating in LinkedIn or they're participating in some other platform, this isn't about that.
1: No, it's not. And that adage, it's lonely at the top, really is very true, particularly if you are a corporate executive who has spent your entire career at one organization, like my friend did. Um, And probably I would have been the same way. I know for myself, when I was in my Fortune 100 company, I really had no need, I didn't think, to look outside of my company because – How is somebody outside of my company going to help me? They weren't going to help me network internally. They weren't going to help me get a job internally. They weren't going to help me get a promotion. But it enriches your life so much more when you have that outside influence. Um, So when I was actually doing the interviews and, and researching bit, I found some pretty interesting statistics I'd love to share with you. So the first one is actually from two thousand thirteen. It's a Bureau of Labor Statistics um, um, which estimates that I think it was two point three million executive jobs exist in the US, of which about three hundred and fifty thousand are listed as chief executive officer. And then another one point nine million are listed as top executive. So yeah, it's a very small segment of the of the US workforce, about two percent. But you're so right, Chicky, this group has such a unique infrastructure and paradigm that when something like this happens to them it's actually much more difficult to bounce back and the article i know you're referencing is from april 28 2008 it's an edition of the wall street journal that claimed for every twenty thousand dollars earned one month of job searching is necessary so if you're somebody that's making let's just say four hundred thousand dollars a year that job search is going to be at least two years long and if you haven't provisioned for that financially you can go into bankruptcy and it's a huge huge issue like i said how often does this happen I, i was shocked that this happened to my friend but it actually happens a lot more often than you would think
0: right but the real core that you get to in this book is that you are more than your title and it's not even so much losing the money and not having the resources um, it's that if if your self esteem is all wrapped up in what 's on your business card, losing that in many ways is way worse than losing the physical trappings
1: absolutely and i I saw that in pretty much every interview that I had, at least for the people that where this had been the first time event. I started seeing some trends amongst the different. Functions, for instance, it seemed like the IT guys, and I apologize for using the word guys, but it was all guys that I talked <laughs> right. to in, in IT. Um, I spoke uh, some of the women that I spoke with were in sales or marketing or HR, but all of the people from IT were guys. Um, the guys from IT took this with a more nonchalant attitude of, "Well, this just kind of comes with the territory. We're expecting this to happen to us." Um, So they had a much more, I wouldn't say hardened, but realistic viewpoint of what happens when a termination or a downsizing occurs. And they know, too, that they're going to be amongst the most expendable. Interestingly enough, sales on the other side is going to be the least expendable because usually only when a company is really crashing and burning are they going to start um, dropping out their their sales team, basically, because everybody needs sales in order to – continue the operations and customer service and and, and so forth. Right, Um, and I'm I'm actually always surprised
0: when people do an across-the-board cut without realizing that.
1: Right, exactly. Exactly. You know, it kind of talks to general management and upper management in a sense of, ooh, what are you thinking? But, you know, maybe (laughs) they've done a a deeper dive on, on the sales numbers or maybe they've actually been calculated in terms of who they are um, downsizing as opposed to just sheer numbers, but it is it really is a very interesting phenomenon though, especially since two thousand and eight two thousand and nine when there were um, over two hundred thousand executives in the unemployed ranks, and even still, a lot of the folks that I spoke with and I spoke with people from two thousand and twelve to two thousand and thirteen and then finished writing the book in two thousand and fourteen um, a lot of those people had been affected in two thousand and eight and were what are labeled chronically unemployed. These are people that have dropped off of the unemployment list. And quite frankly, most executives aren't even going to show up on the unemployment list anyway. So the numbers aren't truly reflective of how many executives are unemployed. Um, The numbers for, for the unemployed are really based upon those who file an unemployment claim. Most executives, most, not all, of course, depending upon the type of severance package they get, are sometimes precluded from filing for those unemployment benefits. So there's a whole segment of executives who are not even included in that number.
0: Well, and not only that, um, some don't wait out the, the whatever number of years it may take to find a comparable position, and they do take something else that doesn't pay as well. And so they are mm-hmm. underemployed, or they yep. try their hand at entrepreneurialism and find that they're not well suited for that. And and so you're right, they just don't show up on the radar.
1: No, you know, and if I can share some more statistics, um, and certainly not to be a, not to be a, um, a downer in this, but it really can be a bleak picture when you start looking at this. There was a January twenty fifth. Um, 2013 article that quoted CNN and NPR, which stated that between 1.5 million and 3.25 million Americans are considered hopelessly unemployed because their average time of unemployment was 10 months. Now, if you go back to that example I gave of a, of a person who's making $400,000 a year um, you know, and that's going to take them 24 months, well, that person is considered hopelessly unemployed. And then, you know, if you look at just some of the statistics of of executives who have been without work for that long a period, the, this, the percentage of unemployed executives or what we would consider the hopelessly unemployed or the chronically unemployed or the chronically underemployed executives, it's actually a higher number than the general population. And I think wow. probably the most stark um, statistic is the one where 100% of us whether we're an executive or we're a, ma- a manager or we're an individual performer 100% of us have a no uh, have a um a no risk um um guarantee meaning none of us has that guarantee that that this won't happen to us none of us is guaranteed work for life none of us
0: right well, and, you know, it's so funny because uh, because I've been an entrepreneur for nearly 20 years now. I get a big kick out of my friends who are in corporate jobs still, and they talk about being there because they need security. And you're right. There is no guarantee. And I remember uh, one of the women in, in the executive girlfriends group uh, that I run I remember her calling me and saying, you know, she, or actually that was back when we had people calling into the calls on Friday. And she was talking to us about how she had, um, you know, she was with a major hospitality company and was having to let go 50 of her staff. And she was just really struggling with her emotions, you know, uh, let alone their emotions, right, which are, are the two, two issues that, that you end up dealing with. And, um, you know, sure enough, three weeks later, she got her slip. And, you know, she called me and was just devastated because she had been with this hospitality company, I think, for 20 years. So, um, you know, it's it's just such an interesting world we live in now. So talk to me a little bit uh, about the book itself because you talked about wanting to tell it in a story that actually grabbed you. And I have to tell you, the first chapter of your book had me mesmerized.
1: Well, thank you. I definitely wanted to create a visual and just a visceral em- emotion and reaction within the very first few sentences.
0: Well, so you the did book it. Starts,
1: <laughs> <laughs> the book starts with smoke. And where there's smoke, there's usually fire. Yeah. And our main character's name is Ralph Pibbs. Um, I wanted to make sure I didn't use the names of anybody that I interviewed. So I didn't interview any Ralphs. And out of that 110, I had maybe about 30 or 35 that that agreed to be credited in the book, and the rest did not want to be credited. And I understand that. But but Ralph Pibbs awakes from his, well, his drunken stupor, and he smells smoke. Now, why is he drunk? Well, he's drunk because he had just gotten his pink slip a couple hours earlier, and he had gone back to his apartment downtown in Philadelphia and went to his trusty vices when he's nervous, when he's upset. you know, um, And like most executives, he doesn't really have a whole lot of friends. It's not like he's going to call anybody. He's incredibly embarrassed. He's going to pick up his bottle of Fonseca Port and start smoking a cigar. He's got to calm down. And unfortunately for him, he drank too much, forgot to put the cigar out, he falls asleep, cigar eventually burns to a nub and rolls off the coffee table and um catches onto the, the rug, and that's how we find Ralph Pibbs drunk, asleep, in a fire, and afraid to not just have having lost his job, his identity and his riches, but now he's afraid he might lose his life. And being in that position of somewhat still hungover, drunk, can't move, can he get out of the sight of the flames? Can he hoist his body away so that he's not going to get burned? Is the fire alarm going to kick in? Does he have a fire alarm? He's not even sure if he's got like a fire safety system. But thankfully for Ralph, in the next couple of uh, minutes, it does.
0: Well, and you know now that I look back at the story of your friend calling you at christmas time and and it was a woman, but yet you chose a man to be the protagonist in your story so So, what was behind that choice? Because I know uh, as an author myself, uh, those are conscious choices that you do make.
1: Um, what I wanted to certainly protect her a bit um, and also the majority of of executives in this country are still male. Uh, Whether we're looking at, say, CEOs in this country, there's still, you know, it's it's a very small two-digit number of female CEOs in public corporations. If we're looking at female board members, I think we're up to 16%, which, you know, we're so excited we're at 16% because we were at 13 a couple (laughs) years ago. But it's still pretty sad, actually. There's – I know so many women, so many of my friends and including the one, you know, who was the inspiration for this, are incredibly intelligent, incredibly accomplished, incredibly successful in their own way, but they could they could be so much more. So right. I wanted to choose a man um again mostly because actually out of the 110 executives I interviewed, only 3 women actually responded to my request. So does that mean that women are less likely to be out of a job? maybe, maybe not. I actually just saw a statistic. I think it was from JobVite um, that ran a survey that said 51% of all employees are looking for for new positions. But men are more likely to be the ones aggressively pursuing new positions positions, or even leaving their job proactively to find something else. So to your point about your friend needing that security, and I hate to generalize and stereotype, um, but women are more likely to stay in a situation that is less than desirable or satisfactory because we, again, generally um, and generically have more of a response to security as opposed to satisfaction. We would rather sacrifice our satisfaction in our professional career than, than the security. And you right. see that just across the board at every level. Right. So that's really the reason why I chose a man um, because it, probably more men can relate to that Mm-hmm. Uh, and also, again, women are much more likely to stay put um, if they have a choice.
0: Exactly. Well, and I, I think that's the real point of whether they do have a choice or not. And I want to just comment quickly on the the uh, observation you made about women board members. We're actually getting ready to do a series uh, on women board positions and, and how you actually – or board positions in general and how, as women, we become – not only aware of them, but prepare ourselves so that we are a suitable candidate for those boards. So, uh, you know, we're recognizing that as an organization that we want to actually uh, equip the very, very talented circle of women that we touch, uh, you know, every week with this show and, you know, just through our, our daily lives, uh, give them the ability to tap into those opportunities.
1: Mm, fantastic.
0: So, so as the story continues, uh, obviously there's the drama around the physical facility and all of his stuff, and, and you know he's still reeling from what's gone on, and he's in this apartment because he uh, has actually temporarily split with his wife. So Correct. tell us a little and bit about is... that dynamic, because I'm sure in many of your interviews that this, this situation was real life.
1: Absolutely, Um, and and the main character, Ralph Pibbs, is is really not just based on any one person. He's really an amalgamation of so many of the different people that I spoke with, Um, and so many of the people that I spoke with had had marital issues or relational issues, personal relational issues uh, during their careers, and that is probably one of the first things that, that is sacrificed when somebody is climbing that corporate ladder is personal and family relationships, Um, So in the story, Ralph is living in an apartment downtown uh, because he is now estranged from his wife. Uh, His wife has accused him of being married to his job. I'm sure, you you know, whether you're male or female, you've probably heard that from your spouse (laughs) at one point or another. And uh, and so he makes the decision that in order to bypass the fighting for the sake of his, his child, he's going to get an apartment downtown and promises to go to counseling, Of course, that never happens because there's always one more project. There's always one more call. There's always one more meeting. There's always something else that takes precedence. And Ralph realizes that, you know, he, he didn't while he was working. I mean, his priority was his job. And I think many executives will state, oh, well, my family is my first priority that's not always the case. Um, when you well, but, but action, I am I, you know.
0: looking right at the sentence about that, Suze, which I, you know I have uttered these words myself, and so I am sure you heard it from the, you know the preponderance of folks that you talked to. He was doing all of this to secure a comfortable future for his family. Why couldn't of she course. understand that? Right? Of because course. that's why they think that. they're putting their family first.
1: My father used to say that to my mom all the time. My father was Mm -hmm. an expat for a large, well, the largest multinational in the world. And we grew up all over the world in eight different countries, which, you know, I thought was kind of fantastic as a little kid. But I know my mom felt really slighted, like, did I marry you or did I marry an adventure? Well, I guess she married an adventure because (laughs) it wasn't the, you know, the white picket fence and the, you know. The dog and whatever Americana type lifestyle that I think she thought she was getting into in the in the sixties and seventies. So yeah, I totally agree. Um, you know, he's doing this. He says for the betterment of his family, but also you know there's some pride issues in there too. Who doesn't want that next promotion? What are well, we working for if it's not for that next promotion? Right. I mean, I think well, to be an executive. And speaking
0: of pride, you know, the next chapter. You know, here he is sitting with a cup of piping hot coffee, you know, with the Red Cross logo on it. And I'm I'm glad you shared, and I think you had shared with me uh, one of the first times we talked about your volunteering uh, with the Red Cross, and I I had not remembered that connection with the book. But, you know, here he is having to take help, uh, which, you know, he really has never had to do.
1: No, no. And and actually it goes on later on into his finances and how he's been the one to write the big checks. So now he's on the receiving end of some charity. Right. And it's, it's a hard pill to swallow because so many executives, we're, we're not very good at accepting help. I mean, we're, we're self made men and women, we've done it ourselves. You know, there's a lot of self reliance. And, you know, Americans in general, and I know you have a very international audience, Chickie, but Americans in general very much prize individuality uh, yes. and independence and now he doesn't have that. He can't even find his the keys to his house, the keys to his car. He's lost his wallet in the fire. He has no he has no credit cards. He can't buy anything. He's got nothing. So from a mental perspective, it's it's a pretty hard pill to swallow and then as he's sitting across the uh um the the table from Steve, the disaster worker, he just assumes Steve is kind of a low-level volunteer guy, doesn't really think much right. about Steve.
0: <laughs> well, and it's it, so, like most allegorical novels, You, because you know as you're writing this you want to deliver these truths, you have made the decision in this book to have people placed throughout this uh this rescue in experience as well as the temporary housing where he gets placed. And so talk to us a little bit about that.
1: Absolutely. So the first character that he meets is a man named Steve who um, is now working at the Red Cross in charge of operations. And uh, as they're on their way to the Red Cross House, which is an actual facility in Philadelphia that houses people who have been displaced by a disaster, um, again, Ralph is thinking, well, this is just a kind of a low-level guy. He's not my level. He's not of my right. stature. Well, it turns out that Steve actually was an executive at a pharmaceutical company doing pharmaceutical operations, um, where Steve was also let go at some point. So Ralph kind of thinks, oh, well, this has happened to somebody else. Oh, really? I'm not alone in this. So I think right. there's a little bit of um Not comfort, but there's almost a bit of a satisfaction of, oh, I'm not alone. Okay, so somebody else this has happened to. Well, what did you do? Um, um, And Steve tells him a a couple of his – what he's learned is that he's really learned to narrow down, to find his passion and pursue that, and also to engage trusted business advisors, coaches, or respected allies. So basically reach out to other people. You can't do it on your own. Um, So by by the time they get to the Red Cross house Ralph is thinking, oh, okay, there's there's lessons in this? Like, I, I need to learn something here? Like, have I missed something in the past? Um, and so when Steve lets him off at the Red Cross house, you know, Ralph's wheels are kind of spinning literally and figuratively of, oh, there might be more to this than what's just happened to me now. So when right. he enters into the, the house and, you know, I actually, of course, in, in, as part of my volunteer work, and and bringing clients to the house you know I took a lot of notes on what does it actually look like and um, how does somebody feel when they get there well it's designed to make people feel very comfortable but knowing too that they've lost everything they're in a very shocked state of mind Um, and there's there's people there to help you um, through the crisis but then how is how are things placed in the house and You know, Ralph has never had to be in a situation like that before. I mean, he's familiar with ligne Rosé furniture and, you know, the higher end of things. So for him to walk into a room that's colored pink and it has a cot and it has a blanket on it, not exactly what he's accustomed to.
0: Right, right. So you you walk us just beautifully through his emotions, both both within his head, uh, and you and I have had this this discussion about uh, when writing a book, being able to expose what's going on in people's heads by interjecting dialogue uh, between uh, individuals. But you actually do both really masterfully, and sometimes he will come out with something. And not even be aware that he said it out loud, which I love. So, so he he gets in into uh, the home, and and you know he he comes into contact with the building manager. So talk talk to mm-hmm. us about Mister Pibbs. Oh, I'm sorry. So, uh, um, no, the building manager's name is something else. I'm sorry, I was confusing uh, Ralph's last name. N-
1: no worries. So so Ralph gets into the uh, the Red Cross house um previously when he was leaving his apartment he had an altercation with the uh with oh, the, the apartment building, yeah. manager because yes, yes, yes because of course you know how does a fire happen what's going on in here and, you know and she's very she's got a big attitude and you know fires just occurred in her building and this is going to be on her and so right. they have an altercation and a number of restoration companies come and um you know try to try to help him out. But, you know, again, he's in a very fuzzy state of mind. He doesn't know who to trust. He doesn't know who to go to. And, again, this is where Steve shows up uh, representing the Red Cross to kind of direct him away from all of the clutter, again, both physical clutter as well as mental clutter. And so when they get to the Red Cross house, he's ushered up into his room um, um, by the person who's at the front desk, and he's just waiting at this point for the social worker to come. Um, And this is actually a true part of the process that a social worker or a caseworker comes to meet every client that comes into the house to talk to them about what some of their options are, how long will they need temporary housing, do they need clothes, do they need pharmaceuticals, and so forth. Uh, Again, based on all of my experiences of going out on Friday nights and helping those who have been displaced by, by fires and other disasters like floods or not that we have earthquakes or hurricanes here but that happens obviously in other places around the country. Right. Um one of the things that that I've noticed is particularly amongst older people is is pharmaceuticals. You know, if a fire occurs, you can't you can't ingest those those medicines because the chemical composition has changed. So now these people need, you know, access to to new pharmaceuticals. So a caseworker comes to sit down with each individual person to ask them what they need. Um, Because, you know, obviously from a mental perspective, from a physical perspective, and even from a spiritual perspective, there's spiritual caseworkers there in case people want prayer. And that's so important. I think a lot of times people overlook that spiritual aspect and might even become very angry with God to say, well, God, if you love me, why would you let this happen? And -hmm. that actually happens quite a bit amongst those who are unemployed. Um, you know, God, how you know you say you love me. I, I need a job. I need to provide for my family. It's gone now. How, how could you let this happen? Right. Um, and we see that time and time again.
0: Right. But as you as you read through the rest of the story, and we don't have time to walk through the en- entire thing as it unfolds, but you realize that the the actual expression of love in this case was that in that situation that Ralph was ministered to in ways that uh while while they had huge impact on his life he he may not even have recognized that he needed those things and and these are the lessons that uh he learns from each of those that he encounters while he's there so why don't why don't we get to those lessons and uh, you know Everyone who's listening has got to read this book. If if you think you're safe in your your job, um, well, we'll get to your story in a few minutes, Suzanne, because you haven't shared that yet. Um, but let's talk about some of these lessons about networking, and uh, we'll just let the listeners uh, go. Order the book on Amazon, uh, and then when they get it, they can they can read the rest of the story because it really is a, a very very engaging story. But what are what are some of the most meaningful lessons that you took away from this book?
1: Well, I would say actually, and, and I'm going to go off of the statistics of the executives that I spoke with. So out of that 110. Um, Uh, Executives, 108 of them found their next position via networking. That's a huge number. And I've seen statistics for networking of 70% or 90%. Mine is close to 100%. So for anybody who is um, contemplating a career change, whether that's by choice or by chance, networking is going to play a huge role in that. And one of the most um, interesting stories I had heard was um, a gentleman was a CFO of a Fortune 100 company that was based in Venezuela. So he was an expat based in Venezuela, and, um, you know, with the situation in Venezuela throughout the years, it's very um, um, turbulent. So he yeah. was uh, ultimately let go and very, became very depressed, didn't want to go out. And, again, this is pretty common, actually, for many executives. Um, they spend a lot of time being very angry and very depressed, and uh, so for the first couple of months, he did nothing, basically. Um, and then, of course, he started feeling that he was unworthy because his calls weren't getting a return. He wasn't being contacted by executive recruiters, etc. even though he had a stellar, stellar resume. Well, his wife said, well, you know, we have the, um, the Schmidt's daughter's wedding. The Schmidt's apparently were the, the neighbors, and, and she said, we have the Schmidt's daughter's wedding uh, next week. Um, we're going to go. And he's like, no, I don't want to go. It's stupid. I'm not going to go. She's like, well, you don't know who you're going to meet. Well, long story short, it was a summer wedding. It was a barbecue. He ended up going, and he ended up sitting next to a guy who had just gotten funded by a venture-backed company and was looking for a CFO. So here he was, somebody that didn't want to go out, was feeling you know, very sorry for himself. He was very happy to stay in his own pity party. But because he actually went outside of his own thought process and desires and Um, You never know where networking is going to happen. So networking doesn't have to happen in traditional networking circles. Um, It happens anywhere. And even for myself, I mean, I met my mentor at a nail salon. I never thought I would meet my mentor at a nail salon, but it turns out after I'd been chatting with her while our nails were drying, she was the first female african-american c-level executive in this country she is a trailblazer she is an icon and she just happened to be sitting next to me at the nail salon i had no idea who she was but we just struck up a conversation and um and continued that so i would say number one networking occurs anywhere Um, right stop thinking of networking as just exchanging a business card it happens anywhere but in order for it to happen there's a couple of things that you have to be prepared for and the first thing is what are your passions? What are you passionate about? Um, and I would say that is the top thing, and that actually goes to um, um, truth number one, pursue your passions. It's impossible to pursue something if you don't know what you're pursuing. And I'll just give a very brief example. I was actually speaking on the um, on the phone with somebody I had met at um, one of the speaking engagements I was giving, and he asked if he could contact me, and I did. And we were chatting briefly, and about sports. He's a big sports nut, always loved sports, um, was talking about golf and his handicapped and his plaid pants and what have you, and so much energy and enthusiasm. And then I said, well, what's next for you? And he went into a canned and monotone speech of he has 25 years in the pharmaceutical <laughs> operations environment, and, and it just sounded so morose. Right. And I said, is that what you really want? yes, well, I have a plethora of experience. Who uses the word plethora of experience when (laughs) you are just like chatting? And I said, look, I said, I think you might actually want to go back and and determine what it is you're passionate about. sounds to me that you're really passionate about competition, and that might or might not be translatable into an, an operational environment. Maybe you'd really enjoy the challenge of a sales environment. I don't know, but I think this is something that he needs to explore. And I think this is something that everybody needs to explore and really understanding what gets them so excited that you can hear it in their voice. You can see it in their eyes. You can almost feel it from the energy that's, that's exuding from them.
0: Right. And, you know, the second point that you make of of what is important in this process can really only happen when you realize that you don't have all the answers. And so the second one is engaging a trusted business advisor, coach, or respected ally because you can't always be objective. And so hearing right. somebody else's perspective, and ha- and I had this uh, happen to me just yesterday. I was sitting down with somebody who uh, I respect a great deal on the marketing front, and uh, she was asking me about my book that I have just written and what's it about, and I went through this long dissertation of the characters and how everything all worked together. And she's like, "No, what's what's the the elevator pitch, right?" And I couldn't see for the weeds of getting down in that level of detail that what she really wanted to know is why should I read it, right? And so when we are unemployed, or we're in a precarious position where we know companies are merging and we may not survive uh, the merger, there just aren't enough chairs um, left, Um, where do you find that trusted business advisor, coach, you know, are are you talking about hiring someone, or do you actually have them in your network and you maybe haven't thought of them in those terms?
1: I think it can be all of the above actually. Um, one of the things that I've I've noticed with the executives that I've spoken with <clears throat> excuse me, is um a lot of companies offer outplacement as part of their severance packages. Um, and obviously you don't want to wait till it gets to that point. You want to, you <laughs> right. want to engage somebody before it gets to that point to prevent it. Um, but mentors come in many different facets. And I think what's important for you to realize is that a mentor-mentee relationship is not just one-sided. What can you give back to that other person? Yes. Um, and I've been very fortunate to have mentors throughout my career and at different levels. And I do think that you do need to have different mentors for the different stages of your career. Um, I had one mentor before I got into management, and she was extremely helpful to me to articulate what it is that I wanted in management. Why did I want to be a manager, and what did I want to be a manager of? Was it a manager of people, or accounts, or time, or money, or projects? And then if I said, okay, it's people, well, what kind of people? But then when I got into management, I don't want to say I outgrew the relationship, but I needed then somebody that had then been at the next level so that they could help coach me through that as well. So I, I, I am a big fan of of having a number of different mentors in different areas. Um, I have um, the woman that I just had had mentioned, who is this uh, icon of um, of America, um, is also a spiritual mentor to me. She is like a mom to me, and she routinely makes me cry, which is not a bad thing. <laughs> mostly, <laughs> you know, but she 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 has that permission to yes. go to places where other people either are afraid to go because, you know, you get to a certain level and you're yesed all the time. I don't want somebody to tell me yes all the time. I want somebody who has the courage to say, you know, Suze, that's really dumb. Why are you doing that? Right. Or have you considered this alternative? And I think very often it's, again, it is lonely at the top, um, and you need to bring people along with you. So where do you find mentors? You can find them. Pretty much anywhere. I think you need to, to determine what is it that you're looking for, uh, what is it that you're lacking, and find right. people who are strong in that. Um,
0: well, and one of the things t- I have observed uh, within my network is a lot of women have that mentor or advisor within their company, and then they feel betrayed because that person is the mm-hmm. very one that has to let them go. And so, one of the things that we have done within the Executive Girlfriends Group is again provided an environment where there was a network of people who are not only in different companies but in different industries. And uh, while I don't want to ignore uh, point number three, which is stay away from negativity, uh, which you know, should be fairly obvious to everyone, the next one, number four, is be open to new directions. And you know, I think you mentioned uh, you know, people getting a job Uh, within a certain amount of time and and how some of them do have to actually change industries, but they find out that their skills are portable, right, and that they actually bring a lot to a new industry because they don't have all the baggage.
1: Yes. And what I found, too, out of the 110 that I spoke with, about 40% changed direction. Um, some went back to school. Some got a Ph.D. Um, I had three people, which I thought was fascinating, actually, went into, like, spiritual services. One one man became a rabbi. Uh, one woman became a universalist, really? uh, Unitarian minister. And another guy became a Presbyterian reverend. Yeah, so... Just being open to what is it is that interests you, and then out of those, um, about twenty five percent also went into nonprofit, and nonprofit is an awesome opportunity for executives to give back to a cause that they're passionate about, whether it's children or the elderly or water or the environment or animals or whatever and to do something to use their functional skills, whether they were in the financial function or they were in the business development function, and to give back to a nonprofit. And like I said, about uh, 25% of that, 40%, I think so, about 10% overall did that. And we actually see that. I mean, that's a pretty growing trend amongst executives who have um, learned as much as they could in the corporate world and want to give back now. There's a lot of different options there. Well,
0: um, one of the other ones I want to jump to just really quickly, uh, and we already talked a little bit about your identity as more than just your stuff. But the next one is after a job loss, uh, keeping a routine. And I remember um, uh, one of my very first radio show interviews was with Nancy Widman, who had been uh, the head of, I, I believe it was CBS Radio, and uh, again, had been through a couple of mergers and had, you know, had been able to hold her job, but then one day... Uh, They walked in and let her go, and she was just um, astounded. But, you know, every day she got up and got dressed and got ready as if she were going to work. And then she actually went and volunteered, which, you know, to your point about, uh, you know, people volunteering, uh, that some of them actually end up choosing that because they realize how much it's needed and that they are really super equipped uh, to do that. Um, and, but some of that takes uh, that, that step of swallowing your pride, which is another one, um, having faith, and uh, you know clearly networking, networking, networking. But I want to talk about the, the last one, uh, and it's actually not last in the list, but it ends up being the one um, that really grabs Ralph, and, and at, at one point uh, – one of the people he has been learning from actually grabs this list that he's been making and, and puts stars uh, next to one particular really key thing. So
1: tell me about that. And it's relationships and family matter,
0: um, yeah. and
1: Ralph does have an epiphany, um Actually I have to tell you my favorite character in the book is, is the cook named Melvin Wong and he's an amalgamation of IT guys. So he's already complex and dark and sinister. Mm-hmm. Um, but he's he's a hilarious character and he's, you know, the keep a routine kind of guy. But um so that is like my favorite character and and probably my favorite chapter because that's where that epiphany happens for Ralph and he's sitting in the cafeteria eating his cabbage rolls with mashed potatoes and gravy. And, um, Michael Jackson's song, "The Man in the Mirror comes up." now, obviously, I can't put the words of the song in the book, but this actually happened I was in um I was actually helping clients who had just lost everything, and um were' sitting there and, and whenever somebody comes into the house, they're automatically given a meal. Most likely, people aren't hungry but um but this um family came in. And this song came on, and the man just started sobbing uncontrollably when the words uh, were, were played um, about how the change really has to happen with him. And it was interesting because in the ride over to the house, the, the husband and wife had been squabbling um, about what, I don't know. I'm not eavesdropping. It's none of my business. But obviously, they've got a lot on their minds. And um, so this scene in the book actually happens from a real-life situation And also from all of the 110 interviews, over 90% of them, 95% of them actually had said that their number one regret throughout their career was that they didn't reach out to the people that they had said was so important to them, whether it was their family or their friends or what have you. And now that they no longer have the job that really had the priority in life, they now want to pick up those pieces and resume relationships with their family, with their friends, with their children. And unfortunately, for, for many of the folks that I had spoken with, divorce was a reality for them. And so they were dealing with split families. And, you know, right. of course, children take sides sometimes, you know, even to the best abilities of the parents, not wanting them to um, but for a lot of these executives, it was just a huge regret for them that they they missed key moments in their children's lives. And, um, you know, as Ralph is listening to the words of Michael Jackson's The Man in the Mirror, he has this breakdown of, oh, my gosh, what have I done? What have I done for the last 18 years of my career? And sure, it's it's nice lip service to say, oh, my family is my top priority, and I love my family, and oh, you know, little Johnny got straight A's last semester, or little Susie's in a dance recital. But how often were you there for the homework? How often were you there for right. the, the dance recital? How often were you there for the practice of whatever sporting event? Um, and a majority of of the people, when they made their decisions to take on their next role, um, A lot of it was done with the thought in mind of, okay, I don't want a position where I have to travel so much, or um, I'm going to take something where either my family can come with me, we'll make it a learning event, or what have you. But they started making conscientious decisions, really putting their family first as opposed to just doing whatever the company asked of them. And it can be a very delicate line, Um, and that's where people, when they're in a job search mode, now actually are interviewing the companies as well as <laughs> yeah. the companies interviewing them. Exactly. And I think so often because we so badly want that job for the title, for the salary, for the prestige, for whatever, that we want to make a great impression. But you know what? There's another side to this too. It's us. It's us. Right. What do we want? What's important to us? And right. I think actually having the courage to stand up for your beliefs and your convictions has been hugely eye-opening and awakening for so many people, right. particularly Ralph.
0: So, Suzanne, you had your own uh, epiphany after, after you were done with the book. Uh, you had been uh, you know, kind of set aside by your company as, as really this networking executive. You had been given uh, actually an incredible title uh, that recognized your ability uh, to pull people together. Then tell us what happened.
1: Well, I actually was um – I was recovering from a surgery. I had been diagnosed with a congenital heart defect that I never knew I had, and I needed massive, scary, serious open-heart surgery. And while I was recovering um, both in the hospital and at home, I took about three months off because it was a very, very serious operation, even though it was, it was something I'd had all my life. I just never knew about it. Um, I had that time to, you know, put together all the notes and write everything, and I thought, you know, what are my passions, what am I passionate about, and what am I going to do about it? And I, I'm very creative, I'm very independent, I'm very autonomous, and I love to help people. I love to help people that can't help themselves. And while I really enjoyed my position of aligning um, high net worth individuals with options overseas for healthcare, for security services, etc. I wasn't being true to myself either, and I had a conversation with the owners of my company um, about what my desires were, and we came to a joint conclusion that there really wasn't a place for me in the organization, and uh, I left. And it was one of those things of where exactly what I had mentioned a couple moments ago of I'm face-to-face now with that decision of do, am I going to choose security or am I going to choose freedom? Am I going to choose my passion? Am I going to choose something that I'm really excited about? And it was a huge decision. It was incredibly scary because, you know, I don't have that regular paycheck coming in. I don't have the regular benefits coming in. But I had a great, I think it's a great idea, I wanted to showcase to people the the different options in healthcare outside of the United States, which meant I would still get to travel, which I love to travel, huge, Mm -hmm. huge traveler, been to 80 countries. Um, I would still get to keep my connections in healthcare, but I would be doing something that can educate literally hundreds of millions of people on the different options for healthcare. And so, you know, having the conversations with the owners was both liberating, exhilarating and terrifying. (laughs) And I think anybody in, that same position I hope would have the same emotions you're excited about the possibilities that lie ahead but there's also concern because you don't know what lies ahead and you really do have to have faith every day when you get up of okay you know here's what I plan is going to happen it might not happen that way but it's right. going to be okay and and that's I think the life of an entrepreneur. Of I've got this great faith both in myself and both in the product and, and everything that I'm doing. Have this great faith that things are going to work out. I'm going to surround myself with people that also believe in this mission. I've got to humble myself because I don't you know I don't have anybody else to rely on. A lot of times I'm relying on God. I'm relying on you know other yeah. people outside myself. And so a lot of these ten truths of executive networking can also be applied to entrepreneurship as well. So it's oh, been a, totally. a really exhilarating
0: totally. journey. Yeah. Now, I always tell entrepreneurs, journey. you have to have a board of directors of your life, right? This isn't mm. about a company or a venture or a specific job that you have. But really figuring out, you know, if you could only call two or three people, uh, you know, to bounce things off of or, or even just to have them listen, you know, when, when you do feel like crying, um, you know, who is it? And, uh, you know, to me that, that was one of the most important takeaways, uh, but clearly the family, uh, the family message is also a big one of, you know, do we go on vacation with our laptops and our cell phones and our iPads or, you know, do we actually take a break and, and, you know, focus on our family? And, uh, I'm sitting here right now thinking about just that cause we're leaving in a couple of hours to go over to Orlando and, um. You know, I would love to just take my laptop and while they're out playing golf, uh, you know, sit and work on my book. But <laughs> anyway, I, I, uh, I will have a come to Jesus as soon as I hang up, I think. <laughs> so, since, um, one of the things I like to leave with people other than just uh, encouraging them to go out and buy the book, um, which, again, is called Safety Network. Is that the full title?
1: It's a Safety Network, A Tale of Ten Truths of Executive Networking.
0: Got it. Thank you so much. Uh, I, I had closed the file where I had that open in front of me. Um, but the other thing is, Suzanne, if, if they want to get in touch with you, if they want to follow you, they want to connect with you, what's the best way for them to find you?
1: Ah, there's a couple of different ways. Um, so they can email me at connect at safetynetworkbook.com and it's connect at safetynetworkbook.com. I'm on Twitter at Suzanne Garber, and I'm also on LinkedIn, and I'm very open to, uh, to LinkedIn uh, requests. I'm not a LinkedIn open networker, uh, right. I actually do communicate with every single person that writes me, and that is kind of a requirement for me because i don 't want just a large network I want a vetted network I want a exactly. network that I know who 's in there and what they do and how they could possibly help me, and more importantly, how I can help them. Um, I think people who have just you know tens of thousands and you know I do have tens of thousands of, of contacts but i 've actually interacted with every single person, and I think that 's right. a huge huge differentiator in having a trusted safety Network of knowing right. who is going to help you in your time of need.
0: Exactly. So again, the site for the book is safetynetworkbook.com, dot com, and from there you can click on her uh, Twitter link and her Facebook link, and, and even send an email, and as well as buy the book. So uh, safetynetworkbook dot com. Suzanne, thank you so so much, uh, also for helping me out on my own writing journey on my my first allegorical novel. Uh, it would not be the same. I guarantee you, without your hand since I found out that I had made the rookie mistake of not having any dialogue in my book in the first draft. <laughs> so um, anyway, I look forward to completing that journey with you and and seeing what life after Safety Network uh, is for you.
1: Fantastic. Chickie, congratulations to you. Thank you so much uh, for all of the input that you gave to me and for the inspiration that you are to me and so many other women.
0: Uh, thank you so you. much. And, and for you. those of you who'd like to know more information about the Executive Girlfriends Group, it's executivegirlfriendsgroup.com, and that will take you to a link to our, uh, both our public uh, pa- Facebook page and our private Facebook page. So thank you so much for joining us this afternoon. We went a little bit long, but it was just really wonderful, Suzanne. So thank you again, and have a great, great holiday weekend.
1: Thank you. Bye-bye.